Malodzi. A very good afternoon to you, and thank you so much for speaking to us, Mr. Malodzi. So, what are your experiences in Johannesburg? Afternoon, I'll say Diso, and uh, afternoon to the listeners. Yes, we also have a, a number of uh, situations or incidents uh, which have been reported uh, uh, previously, but the latest ones, uh, you'll recall that uh, around uh, January this year, we had an incident where uh, paramedics were robbed in Yeovil, um, you know, gunpoint, and they were taken, or some of their valuables were taken while they were attending to a a patient. And the worst one was in Brixton around February where paramedics had to flee with the, together with a patient, and they had to abandon the ambulance to, they had to run to the nearest uh, police station, which was a Brixton uh, police station. So, I'll say we have seen a number of an increase in terms of uh, attacks uh, in Johannesburg. We have had an incident in the latest one was in Chippewa Town where uh, paramedics were attacked and also uh, some of our equipment was taken there. Um, for instance, new drug bags and other things mm. which we use to uh, when we're treating you know patients on an emergency. So they targets because of um, the equipment that they need to administer whatever emergency services, so that cell phones, but including drugs as well. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, we're saying it's, 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 you will recall that most of the time, uh, especially in, the, in Johannesburg, we're doing uh, both fire and uh, medical emergencies. So they are actually uh, attacking us. It doesn't matter whether it's an ambulance or a fire engine. If you still recall, uh, around August last year, to be exact, I think it was on the 5th of August, uh, one of our fire engines was coming from uh, Midlands, uh, driving across in Zimbabwe. When it was stopped uh, by people who were protesting there about the service delivery issues, and uh, unfortunately they uh, touched the fire engine, they set the fire engine alight, and most of the equipment which was in the fire engine was stolen. Uh, that fire engine, together with the equipment which was stolen, can cost about uh, around uh, 4 million rands. So these incidents, they are really, really getting out of hand. And from our side, we don't want to find ourselves in a situation where, I would say, when you have to come to help you, we'll have to via a police station all the time to get escort. It, it is not feasible. We cannot afford to, because that process actually delays you know, the response time for us to get where you are, because we have to via the police station from the police station, we have to get an escort, which is really unnecessary if uh, our communities are working with us. I don't think that we have to go to use that route. That is why, from our side, we are on our knees saying to our communities, our communities need to protect us as much as we're protecting them on a day-to-day basis. Yes, we understand that uh, our work is risky, but we understand that. But, but now, our communities cannot even make it worse because we know as we respond to these emergencies, we are risking our lives. We might involve, we might get involved in an accident. We know that uh, most of the incidents, you know, are actually occurring, you know, late at night. So we understand those dynamics about our work. But I think the only people who can protect us, except the police, are the communities we serve. Mm-hmm. And has there been instances where communities? are doing this, rallying behind emergency services and, and, and trying to ensure that they, they're not vulnerable to criminals? Yes, we've we had a number of uh, interactions or engagement with our communities, especially, I would say, the community policing forums, because in most of our communities, you, there's already structures which are there, which are 
mostly you know looking after specific communities in uh, various areas throughout the country. So we, we, what we're doing in Johannesburg is to uh, have more intensify our interactions with those community uh, uh, patrolling uh, forums so that somehow when we have an emergency, they can also, while they're doing whatever they are doing there, they can also be able to uh, look after us because uh, them, the advantage is that they are familiar with you know, uh, people in that specific area. And also looking at working together with the uh, security companies, private security companies who are operating in, in those specific areas who service on a you know, day-to-day basis. Maybe if we do that, we think that uh, we can be able to uh, manage, you know, the situation. Because we don't find out, uh, we don't want a situation where we have to go for martial arts, you know, uh, classes or whatever to be able to protect ourselves. Because it's not going to help us because when we respond to an emergency outbreak, we're focusing on you as a patient. Even if we have those skills, we're not going to be able to use them. Even if, for instance, we are armed, we're not going to be able to use whatever ammunition we might have. I think uh, we really, really, really need that protection because already now uh, these situations are creating fear into us when we are supposed to respond because you don't know mm-hmm. what is going to happen when you respond to that emergency. Well, Mr. Mlauti, you never know. Martial arts may just be another solution at hand. But thank you so much for speaking to us. Robert Mlauti is Johannesburg Emergency Management Services spokesman. we on the line now to um, President of the International Social Science Council, a psychologist, Dr. Seth Cooper, to analyze the situation. A very good afternoon to you and thank you so much for speaking to us Uh, Dr. Cooper. Uh, Some of the paramedics have said even in countries where there are wars, they've never heard of ambulances being attacked. Is this how you would describe such brazen acts of, um, uh, you know, criminality, especially against people who are supposed to uh, be helping members of society who are rendered vulnerable? Yes, I think it's, it's really tragic that precisely those people who are there to save lives and to help seriously injured people uh, get attacked in this way and various kinds of other incidents happen like rape and so on. And for me, it underpins the state of lawlessness almost that we've reached in our country. And I'm glad you, you draw the through the parallel with countries at war because we have more acts of violence and murder than any other country um, and often more than those at war. So it tells you the levels at which we've uh, fallen in terms of um, serious uh, attacks on, on individuals. And there is... Probably, there are probably reasons for some of these attacks, but they are unconscionable in a democratic society, indeed in any society, mm. where helpers are treated in this way. Can Those we then helpers- examine the, the fabric of our own society? It's been said in the past that we're a, a violent society, and it's because we have a, a violent past. Is it 
necessarily that uh, our psyche has been affected by that violent past that there is no, you say it's unconscionable is it because that uh, people just cannot find themselves uh, connecting human to human that whatever socioeconomic experiences they believe leads them to that that you know it just doesn't even register that there's something wrong with it well when you finish your program and you drive out from that parking lot and if you don't happen to leave the traffic light on time, how many uh, horns are on you and how many uh, swearings are you confronted with? We're a society that's very angry, and obviously a lot of this comes from the past, but there's been no attempt in these 22 years to actually deal with it. So we actually now have almost a free-floating anxiety. People who find themselves angry, just take it out on those that are often closest to them and complete strangers as well. So a lot of us will resort to anger and violent uh, tensions the moment something that we don't like happens. We have not learned the ability to constrain our the inner beast in us and we let go with anything at our disposal. Mm. And therefore, those often closest that would seek our protection, often find themselves being the easiest victims in our circumstances. How do we then um, prescribe or even ensure that a nation undergoes so-called national therapy? Do we uh, inculcate it in our schools? Do we uh, do that, ensure that at the workplace or even in churches that there is some form of national therapy to deal with these issues? Well, I think that the best place to start with, and I've been a great advocate of it, is in school. Start with the creches and the kindergartens. If our kids learn problem-solving techniques at that tender age, they will not burst out like, Uh, I may likely do and other adults and teenagers do. So we need to start early and we need to have public education program. The SABC, the National Broadcaster, can actually uh, run a program on why do we do the things we do and how should we in turn behave appropriately. But you see, at the bottom of it all is a deep sense of insecurity and inferiority and uncertainty that the overwhelming majority of us confront about ourselves and therefore anything that happens extraneously we're quick to take umbrage at Mm. and that'll happen in the work environment it'll happen in the sports environment it'll happen i dare say in other social environments i'm curious Uh, though yeah. I'm curious though, how much does language play a part of that? Because I do find also the language that we use belies the violence of our society. Well, look, uh, that's another topic on its own, the, the epistemic violence that our language connotes and people take exception at it. Uh, I mean, you, you're familiar with the kinds of buzzwords that will make you bristle. I'm familiar with those that will make mm-hmm. me bristle. But, it, you know, it's a simple backing away, simple lifting your hands up and saying, sorry, Kolo, I'm, I'm backing off. Uh, that can deflate a terrible situation. But we don't do that. Instead, we look at the other person and, and look at them as a thing. We have reified the other to such an extent that any attack on that person will result in... Uh, 
in me demolishing a thing rather than another human being. The moment we begin to think of each other as fully human, that if I am cut, I'll bleed, I have the same ingredients that you have, and so on, it begins a different discourse. But unfortunately, with the kinds of outpourings that we've had and the terrible racist past that we've come from, and the almost entitled social media space that some people seem to employ, we going from worse to I don't know where. And that is beginning to reveal itself in our social, in our work, in our educational and other environments. And it, no society can continue in this fashion. This is perhaps the spring of our discontent with students um, taking to the streets with a whole lot of other protest action. Our people are generally edgy. And that is not a nice state to be in. Look at Parliament. Look at our leaders confronting, fighting each other in the run-up to the election. How many people have not been killed? So we're a violent society mm. indeed. And the sooner we confront that, it's not about them and us. us. The overwhelming majority of us behave in this fashion. All right, Dr. Cooper, and I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. But let's have another conversation on another day. Certainly one worth pursuing further and deeper. Dr. Seth Cooper, psychologist and former president of the International Social Science Council. And speaking of road rage, Rob Byrne, how are we looking out there? Traffic on SAFM, your trusted guide to the road ahead.